I'm John Edwards, the lute player and artistic director of the Musicians in Ordinary. You're hearing an excerpt from Orlando Gibbons' Fantasia of Four Parts, which is from a book of music for the virginals called Parthenia. And this is the fourth in a series of podcasts about that book, with performances of music from it by keyboardist Louise Hahn. These podcasts and the recordings of Louise's performances are supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, York University, the SPEM in Allium Fund of the Toronto Foundation, and individual donors. From ancient times, from the Greek Pythagoras and even beyond to ancient Mesopotamia, it's been known that the different notes of a scale are related by mathematical ratios. If you cut a string in half, the twelfth fret on a guitar, you'll get from Do past Re Mi, etc., to the next Do. If you stop the string length by a third, leaving two-thirds of the string to vibrate, you'll get the fifth note in the scale from the unfingered string, from Do to So. But if you have a very long string and keep going up by that two-thirds ratio, do to so, so to re, etc., the numbers add up so that you'll be hopelessly out of tune when you get all the way back to a do, which you've calculated by going from do to do to do, by halving the string every time. And indeed, lower down notes will be perceptibly wonky too. So to be in tune in different keys, we have to borrow or compromise, something musicians call tempering a scale. Modern pianos and fretted instruments are in what we call equal temperament, so no key is favored. But in previous centuries, different systems were used on keyboards in particular, so that some scales and chords were in tune, and ones less commonly used were less in tune. Louise and I talked about temperaments, but only after we discussed what we could know about pitch in our period. What did A sound like, and why could it sound like what we call B-flat, or G, or anywhere in between the cracks on a modern piano keyboard? At the end of our talk, you'll hear some examples from Orlando Gibbons' piece to hear how mellifluous certain passages sound in mean tone tuning, and then you'll hear all of Gibbons' fantasia of four parts. Um, Louise, so today we're going to talk about um, pitch and temperaments, which is necessarily going to get a little technical, but we'll try and not be that technical. I think most people uh, listening will know that musical notes or sounds are vibrations in the air the string is vibrating or your vocal cords are vibrating or a bell is vibrating and that excites the air and it hits our eardrum um, in 1939 the international standard organization decided that a the second string on a violin would be vibrating 440 times a second so we call that A440. Now, they decided that, and orchestras now often tune sharper than that, 443 or 445 or even 450. 
um, which would sound to a, even to a lay person would sound out of tune. Four forty three would sound a little if you heard two violin A's at four forty and four forty three that would sound out of tune. Now in our period, different cities had different pitches, and even in the same city, wind instruments might be at one pitch and. The church organ might be a, diff a different one, and the vial consorts might be even a different pitch from that. Uh, what can we know about the pitches of virginals in England and harpsichords more generally in our period? So keyboard instruments and pitch, as with most instruments, especially back in the day, have quite a complicated relationship with pitch. There are basically different sizes of instruments, different string lengths will lead to certain pitches that will just resonate better with certain instruments. So they had a lot of different preferences in different places. So particularly in England, they actually tuned their virginals quite high. It was something around basically 459 to 497. For their age? So 465, um, just for listeners, typically in, in people who play early music now, we sort of shift around in half steps from modern piano pitch, just because that's how keyboards work. So 440 is a modern piano pitch, as I say. 415, a lot of Baroque orchestras are playing everything at 415, uh, is a half step down. 392 is a whole step down. That was a very popular pitch in France and the south of Italy, Rome and Naples in our period. And uh, 465 was a common pitch. Bach's organ was probably sharper uh, than ours at 465. And then, uh, because we know that because the many of the organ parts, the organ continuo parts, are written out a tone apart from the stringed instruments, which are at 415. And specifically, if you look at the kind of, I guess, the number in between 459 and 497, you get 478, which is close to choir pitch, 473 mm -hmm. in England, which seem like kind of the more common pitch that people were tuning to. So at least virginals there in England seem that they were being tuned to a pitch that was pretty common for other instruments or kind of a more a standard pitch you could say that was happening in England specifically. Mm -hmm. So there so it was common for them to be sharper as much as a half step or possibly more sharper than our pitch nowadays. But Pretorius, uh, writing in Germany, he writes a, um, a music dictionary in uh, 1618. He says that formerly in England and up to now in the Netherlands, most wind instruments have been made to sound a minor third lower than our present day cameratone, so that their F is our D. Um, he goes on to say, this is true of the excellent maker Johannes Bossus, Jan Boss of Antwerp. He uses this pitch in most of his harpsichords and virginals, as well as the organs built into them. So he's, Pretorius is also saying that the pitch of Antwerp makers could be quite a lot lower. Yes, for sure. Um, they went down to like 392 yeah. quite often, somewhere between 415 and 392. And there seems to be a couple of examples of just people saying that keyboard string instruments generally sounded better at a lower pitch. Mm -hmm. um, 
they sounded sweeter and rounder. Um, Pretorius talks about uh, English uh, vial consorts as well being uh, at a, a much lower pitch. So let's say 392, a whole tone as much as a whole tone down. Yes. I think it's, yeah, again, important to keep in mind that these pitch ideas for like specific instruments are like very much tied to their resonances Mm -hmm. um, and how the instrument vibrates. Um, Can I read you something written? This is written by uh, William Barley, a lute method from the late 16th century. And and, in its lesson 24 in his book, he starts telling you about tuning. He says, now, uh, finally and last of all, only resteth to show the tuning of the lute and is a thing which may not be wanting to some men very hard and difficult to be done of many practitioners because, here we go, because it is subject to the delicateness of a string or to the greatness and smallness of the instrument. The best help, therefore, is consent to nature, which by no means will not be forced. So I have three... Uh, lutes that I use for uh, Elizabethan and Jacobean music and I use the same diameters of strings on them they have uh, string lengths of 51 centimeters just under 60 centimeters and 69 centimeters a modern classical guitar is 65 and so I use the same strings on all of them and the smallest one is tuned very high. I think of it, uh, the top string as A at 465. Uh, The medium one, uh, which is good for using with sopranos in John Dowland songs and things like that, um, I I think of that top string as G at 440. And then the the big ones, the 69 centimeter ones, I think of the top string as being, sometimes I think of it as G at 392, which is a piano F. And sometimes I think of it as E at 465, which is also a piano F. But it doesn't matter because I'm playing lute tablature, so this pitch is, I just grab a bigger lute if the singer wants a lower pitch. Um, I I guess in the sense of keyboards, on the other hand, uh, we don't have the luxury of playing the same fingering for different pitches. Mm -hmm. but you do have organs that have multiple transposition options. At um, the time, in, yes. in the 17th yeah, yeah. century. And mm-hmm. later on, you do have more commonly harpsichords with... Mm-hmm. Um, capos. Yes, that you see, yes. Right? That's they were they, The first mention of those, it's, I think, is 1630 for mm-hmm. transposing up. Of course, you can't transpose down with a capo very no. easily. So, that's, um, so pitch is just really depends on the size of the instrument... And, and where you are. And where you are. Where, uh, what uh, kind of music you're playing, mm-hmm. with who, what's a range of the... But the uh, obviously, b- 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 since a keyboard instrument has many, many more strings, even than the most heavily stringed lute, we all have to tune to whatever the harpsichord or organ is typically yes. uh, at. Let's talk now a little bit about temperament. When we were talking about, uh, in our first episode... You talked about how uh, Elizabeth Stewart had a special guy who was paid just to tune her harpsichord in time for William Byrd to come over for her lesson that day. Without getting too technical, which I realize is impossible, <laughs> uh, tell us what a temperament is and why E flat and D sharp, which look like the same note on a keyboard, are in fact different notes. 
So I think to start at the beginning of what tuning is and what temperaments are, it really comes down to the relationship between two vibrating strings or um, two pitches, two notes. And when you have two notes that are in tune, basically you will hear one very pure sound and mm -hmm. it won't waver. Yeah, yes. the beats. Between the different pitches, two strings, if they're slightly out of tune, you'll hear a sort of whoa, whoa, whoa. And the more out of tune it is, the faster it beats. So whoa, mm -hmm. whoa, 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 whoa. And as you tune more and more into more and more in tune, it gets slower. So for example, if you're tuning two notes on the harpsichord, you would have one that you've already tuned and that one's at the pitch you want. And then you would compare it to a separate, uh, a, a different note. You play two at the same time. And then that second note, you would either move it up or move it down by uh, cranking the string tighter or looser. Mm -hmm. and to get rid of the beats. Yes. And as it gets uh, closer and closer, it'd be whoa, 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 and then you yeah, hear... Yeah, that's... So an octave, the C and the next C up, mm -hmm. they should be completely without beats if it's in perfect just intonation. Yes. Um, that's actually basically in all temperaments, your octaves need to be mm -hmm. in tune because those are the ones that if you play two of the same note, well, I guess they're different, for example, if you take C's, they're two different C's, mm -hmm. but they're both C's, the ear can really pick that out if they are out of tune. Mm -hmm. Whereas it can become more and more forgiving as you start going into the other combinations mm -hmm. of intervals. So C to G, which is five notes, a perfect fifth, we call it, that can be perfectly in tune without beats on Pythagorean tuning. Um, but on pianos, it's not. No. Um, and just, I think I'll, maybe I'll talk about this in chronological order. So oh, good, yeah. before the Renaissance, <laughs> or I, I should say maybe like early Renaissance, um, uh, Middle Ages tuning, it was uh, Pythagorean tuning where the fifths were valued more, I mm -hmm. guess you could say. So those are the ones that are in tune um, on the keyboard. And basically, you would try to tune, for example, yeah, C to G with no beats, and then G to D, no beats. Um, Which is fine if you're staying in one key. Yes, um, especially when you have keys that don't have a lot of, mm -hmm. yeah, sharps or flats in the key signature. Um, but then as time went on to the later part of the Renaissance, you have pieces that value triadic harmonies basically more and you, you can see it in the music earlier music often favors fifths fourths octaves mm -hmm. and it makes sense that the tuning would favor those intervals whereas once you get into the later renaissance and then moving on towards baroque music you have triadic harmonies taking over so mean tone quarter comma mean tone becomes the more general standard for tuning. Um, mm -hmm. So for quarter comma, it's the thirds that are all in tune. They are all just intervals. And then all the fifths are just slightly narrower um, mm. than they are if they were just um, intervals, basically. So just a little bit more narrow. But the problem is because the keyboard is fixed pitch, when you go through the circle of fifths, uh, at some point, you will end up back where you started. But mm -hmm. the problem with that is because everything is slightly out of tune, when it gets back to where it's supposed to be, you have to make a 
A comma. Yeah. A uh, comma. Actually, the comma was a ninth of a whole tone. Uh, Which is quite big. Yes. You but, definitely hear that. Yeah. Um, but then with that last fifth and you get, you can't basically make it in tune with the other fifths that you've, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you've tuned. So you get something called a wolf interval, which is an interval that's very, very out of tune. And composers try not to use it, basically. So uh, one reason I don't need to know very much about this is because uh, lutes and vials, right from the earliest descriptions of how, where to put your frets, uh, lutes and vials are in equal temperaments, like modern piano would be. Because the first fret uh, gives me the note G sharp, E flat, uh, B flat or A sharp, uh, F sharp. So all of those that you're using in more extreme keys, those sharps and flats, are on the same fret. So unless I have a zigzaggy fret, which is not possible to do with a piece of gut tied around the neck, it's impossible to have a, 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 all of those thirds uh, in more just intonation, as you say. In This is t- around 1700, late after our period. Manin Marais, the vile composer, has a, a tombeau in F-sharp minor, for the, which on a keyboard instrument would sound very out of tune in the temperament that they were using at the time. But he says in the preface he says you should get this accompanied by a theorbo this piece because it will sound in tune because they both got frets if you need to have it accompanied by a keyboard tune the vial down a whole tone and play it in and transpose it to e minor for the keyboard mm-hmm. so that it will mm-hmm. sound into so it will sound in tune because extreme keys like f sharp minor don't won't sound good yes. in the temperaments in, at the time and basically that happens because um if you come from kind of a playing piano and thinking about pitch in that sense you're for example if we take e flat your e flat and your d sharp are the same thing mm-hmm. and you don't really have to think any different of that but for basically all other instruments where pitch can be moved that's a different note Mm-hmm, E flat mm-hmm. and D sharp because you're tuning that to another note because tuning is about relationships with other yeah. notes is not about one single note on its own so if that D sharp is going to be something different when it's for example a B to a D sharp if you're playing like a in B that major, context yes in yeah, that, in a that B context. major chord but an E flat um, when you're playing like a C minor chord or E flat major chord, that E flat is going to be something different than the D sharp in mm-hmm. a B major chord. So basically tempering, um, using temperaments is, it's always going to be a compromise is that certain things are going to be more in tune mm-hmm. and certain things are just going to be less in tune. And depending on the music that you're playing, you make that decision basically on what the music needs, like what it mm-hmm. favors, um, this and is what it. keys so you're lute, in. So in lute instruction manuals have you put the 12th fret exactly halfway between the nut and the bridge, and you put the 5th fret, sorry, the 7th fret, which is a 5th, perfect 5th, you put that exactly one third of the way, and, you, and then it describes, there are different methods, they describe where to put your different frets. And 
they generally come out more or less in equal temperament. In the end of the 16th century, uh, Vincenzo Galilei, the father of Galileo, they were both worried about geometry and proportion. Vincenzo Galilei, the lute player, figures out that each fret needs to be, for equal temperament, one eighteenth of the remaining string length. And so that's still how you decide where to put frets on a guitar, modern guitar. It's the exact multiplier is one seventeen point eight nine six or something. It's not exactly eighteen, but so in lute pieces, because they're in tablature, they're theoretically you don't know what key they're in, really. You have F minor, which is a key you don't really see till box time. Uh, you can have more extreme keys. You can have A flat major and things like this. I find when I'm playing with keyboards in Baroque music, I'll have my frets on my Theorbo, my Continuo lute. Uh, I'll have them set up for equal temperament, but I always find I have to shuffle the first fret, which gives me B flat major, most of the notes of B flat major. I have to shuffle that slightly lower. And then there are also certain chord shapes which I need to avoid because if that one's lower and the third or the fourth fret's slightly sharper, then I can't play these chord shapes. I have to think of a different way to voice the chords. And you just avoid certain chords in certain keys when I'm playing with keyboards in mean tone temperament. So lutes and viols, because they're fretted, are in equal temperament quite early, uh, certainly by the 1580s when Vincenzo Galilei makes his discovery. And it's, there's a suggestion, a not very solid suggestion, that uh, Frescobaldi, who uses some very extreme keys in his keyboard music, that he wanted uh, an instrument tuned in equal temperament. However, it's not safe uh, attribution. Uh, there's um, a German theorist who suggests it, but it's in an unpublished manuscript. So it's just some guy writing for himself in Germany. It's really more modern times that we start to get equal temperaments on keyboards all the time, isn't it? Yes. And kind of speaking to that, it's because of modulations that, that mm -hmm. happens. The especially if you look at the stuff in Parthenia, it doesn't modulate very far away from whatever key it starts in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if it's an A minor, for example, it's going to go to C major at some point, maybe. Mm -hmm. And um, they share the same key signature, so you don't run into the issue of having, again, to make a decision whether accidental or uh, mm -hmm. your black key is going to be... Uh, one note or the other and um, with mean a uh, quarter comma mean tone you can basically get away with using key signatures that have are very close to each other so basically have like one sharp or flat and you can mm -hmm. play those pieces um, in a row without it being too uh, too out of tune but once you get further and further away or if uh, you have for example I was playing a program um, that had both uh, key signatures that had lots of flats in them, or not lots, but a couple of flats, and then uh, pieces with key signatures that had sharps in them. And that unfortunately ends up um, mm -hmm. being quite difficult and you have to make some sort of decision there. It's like, well, I guess some of the pieces yeah. are going to be certain intervals are going to be very, very out of tune. 
Um, and you have the option of, okay, I can retune a couple of notes during intermission or something, or you can keep it. And then there are just certain very, very expressive chords. Expressive you could say, is a good word. Um, yes. Very crunchy sort of <laughs> chords that happen in certain keys. Um, and as composers start writing music where they modulate to further away keys or more different keys. As keyboard keys. composers. Yes. Because John yeah. Dowland, because he's playing the lute, mm-hmm. he's doing quite a lot of that, <laughs> even in, in 1610. But he's got equal temperament, more yes. or less. Once again. Um, so then, again, then the when, keyboard tuning gets closer and closer mm-hmm. to, um, to, equal. to equal. And equal temperament, really the best way to describe it is that every single interval is equal equally out of tune (laughs) so then you have music that is just um no longer i guess influenced by the like the coloration of key signatures or Mm -hmm. of of keys anymore i know sometimes like people still talk about like in a in the modern sense of like oh this key sounds like synesthesia yeah or or even not necessarily that or just maybe in those terms talking about like certain keys sound a certain way to them but until you hear i think actual kind of like tunings that have um just intervals in them i think coming from a modern point of view it's very difficult to fully experience what people were writing about when they said that certain keys Mm -hmm. feel certain ways emotionally or expressively and it's Mm -hmm. just because the intervals and being in and out of tune makes such a huge difference. Whereas um, with equal, they really do. They all sound the same. <laughs> <laughs> um, so par- uh, in Parthenia, there's one Fantasia, which we're about to hear by Orlando Gibbons. So it's a more academic piece and it's a very long piece compared to the others than the little pavins and galliards that were not so little pavins, but certainly little galliards that sort of stick in one key. It goes to more various places than a, a, a short dance might do. And you're going to play for us, and I'll edit into the end of this talk, uh, a few places that now that everybody's sat through our technical descriptions of these things, they'll hear back to back a short passage in equal temperament and mean tone temperament played by you. And then you'll hear the whole piece after that. That was Louise Hung, performer on the virginals and other early keyboard instruments, in conversation with me, John Edwards. Here's measures five and six from Orlando Gibbons' Fantasia of Four Parts from Parthenia in equal temperament, where all of the semitones are an equal distance from one another. Now, here's the same passage in quarter comma mean tone, where some chords will sound more pure. Here's the end of measure 53 and 54 in equal temperament. Here's the same passage in mean tone. 
Here's measure 68 in equal temperament. And here's the same passage in mean tone tuning where I think if you listen carefully, the E major chord on the third beat, what we might say is the most tense chord in the phrase, sounds a little fruitier than in equal temperament. Check musiciansinordinary.ca for Louise's bio. Subscribe to our podcast for more music and poetry of the 16th and 17th century and more chat about it. And if you would like to help support these podcasts, please go to canadahelps.org and search for us there or to musiciansinordinary.ca and click through the link. Now let's hear Louise's recording produced by Matthew Antle of Orlando Gibbons' Fantasia of Four Parts.